0: there's something that our bodies react to, right? As a response to a stressor or something to some experience and that doesn't feel good for us. And then we're, um, yeah, there's no one there to co-regulate with us so that we can actually stay in our bodies and be with what's there because it's safe because there's someone there that can hold that with us as children. And that's what we need. And if we don't get that, then, um, We don't learn how to stay in our bodies with all of these emotions um, and sensations um, in a way that um, we can actually process them fully. And so, yeah, here we are having to figure it out as adults and finding our way back home into our bodies.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the Wild on Purpose podcast, a place for those deeply committed to knowing themselves, and embodying their authentic purpose in the world. I'm your host, Kelly Wildmiller. In this show, we gather to discuss what it truly means to lead by our essential nature and uncage our greatest gifts so we may share them with others. We'll be exploring an expansive range of topics, from health and healing, spirituality and consciousness, to relationships, work, and more. As we turn over many stones, we'll uncover a golden thread, inviting us to rewild our bodies and minds while awakening our souls and stepping more fully into our purpose. Thank you for being here, and please enjoy this wild conversation. Hello, wild ones. It's been a little while. Thank you for your patience. So excited to be back with you. Today's guest is a writer, storyteller, meditation and breathwork teacher, surfer, and creative mentor, empowering people to create exactly as they are and to share their gifts in a regulated way through the mind-body connection. Connie Bisalski has been one of my creative mentors through her course, Create As You Are, and from her super honest, down-to-earth writing online, where she courageously shares her personal healing journey and what it's actually like to be an online entrepreneur. In this wild conversation, Connie and I talk about the liberating powers of coming out of the proverbial closet. We both get vulnerable and personal about how we catapulted our healing journeys through sharing our biggest secrets or withholds with others, We discuss nervous system regulation, and I get her perspective on my quote-unquote creative dysregulation pattern that I've historically experienced when I would always start and then burn down my creative projects before completing them. She shares her perspectives on healing childhood trauma, releasing stuck emotions in the body, and untangling insecure attachment styles through intimate partnership. I got to tell you guys, this episode is really insightful and maybe might be a mirror for some of the ways that you're healing. When it comes to rewilding, I believe this conversation touches on some of the most important topics, including our relationship with our bodies, the meaning we make of our past, speaking our truth, how we heal within intimate partnerships, and the unfoldment of our connection to that wild life force energy we call creativity. Now, before we begin this conversation, I just want to share with you that I'll soon be winding down season one of this podcast. Although it's only been about a four-month journey so far, I've learned a tremendous amount about myself as a creator and how the wild mystery of creativity wants to move through me. I can tell there is an evolution taking place within myself and my work, so I am going to be listening for what wants to come next. If you'd like to stay intimately connected with me, my work in upcoming podcast creations and all creations, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at kellywildmiller.substack.com. Part of my evolution is a peeling away from the fast-paced attention-grabbing world of social media so that I can move more slowly and deliberately on the platforms that truly cultivate connection and help my nervous system stay regulated. So if you'd like to join me there, the website once again is kellywildmiller.substack.com linked in the show notes where you can subscribe for free or become a paid supporter. As always, thank you for the support that you offer through your attention, listening, and wild curiosity. Now for this wild conversation with Connie. Welcome, Connie, to the Wild on Purpose podcast. It is such a joy to have you here. How are
0: you doing in this moment? Hey, Callie. Thanks for having me. Super stoked to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I am doing... I I don't want to say good or great or any of those <laughs> expressions. Uh, let me just check in for a moment. Ah, yeah. I feel grounded now. Um... I feel some excitement and joy in my body. Yeah. So excited to Amazing. dive in with you, see what unfolds. Mm. I
1: echo those, those words as well. And just to give both of us, as well as the listeners, a context, where are you in the world right now? And what does the natural landscape look like outside your doors? <laughs>
0: yeah for sure um i am in portugal in a small surf town called ericeira and um it's just north of lisbon about 30 45 minutes and when i look out the window um i think sunset's coming up soon and i can see a couple of rooftops and the ocean in the background so yeah (laughs) beautiful (laughs)
1: Well, the question that I've been kicking off all my episodes with is in what ways were you a particularly wild child and how is that viewed in the lens of your family of origin?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing because uh, what a beautiful question. Um, I know it's kind of the theme, obviously, of your work and your podcast, but uh, no one's ever asked me this question before and I love I love feeling into that actually for a second because it's, it actually, it's, I can feel almost like a sense of, um, a bit of sadness. Like I find it really touching to be asked this question because I think I was a pretty wild child and it wasn't very much appreciated. Um, and so I was a, I was a true tomboy, uh, and I was all about being, Outside being in the woods and, um, being on my skateboard and, um, playing soccer and just really feeling life. And, and so, um, I was very, very different to my sister who's older than me. So she was the, the girly girl. And I was the, uh, I was the tomboy, the, I was the little boy, like I wanted to wear boys underwear, The you know, the, the, the kind where you can, there's like this opening and you can, <laughs> you know, obviously <laughs> girls don't need that, but I tried really hard to make it work for me. So I could pee in the same way that boys could. And anyway, so, um, yeah, I was very gender confused as a child and, um, had a lot of energy. And so in my family of origin, I think because at the same time I was very much oriented towards my sister, who was the girly girl and very sensitive. And, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was seen fully for who I was from early on. And, um, I was also very much, well, my sister was more oriented towards my mom and because my mom was taken sort of by my sister, cause she needed a lot of, um, attention. It was like my dad was left. And so, um, I guess he did appreciate me being more of the the wild one in the family. Cause, uh, yeah, I just, um, he could do all the sports with me and, you know, go wild with me. But generally I always felt like, I shouldn't be as wild as I was. And it took me a long time to get to a place where I could then also fully appreciate my wildness. And Mm -hmm. yeah. So thanks for asking. This is cool. Mm.
1: You're welcome. And where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in a little town in Bavaria in the south of Germany, close to Munich. And I grew up actually in a few different places around there and different houses. And, but I was really lucky enough that we did live just around the corner from, um, a big forest. And, um, it was, I mean, a a town that's awesome to grow up as a child, but then once you become a teenager, you're like, get me out of (laughs) here. So, um, so that's, that's what happened when I was a teenager. Yeah. I got out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, the, when you were telling the story, the thing that really popped out at me was this sense of really feeling life. Like I have this image of you Mm -hmm. kind of dressed as a tomboy, riding a skateboard down these streets next to the woods and just feeling life. And it reminds me of Mm -hmm. growing up in, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area and I was so into my rollerblades. And I would go everywhere around mm-hmm. the peninsula and just rollerblade. And it was just felt like so much freedom and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also so this, true. Yeah, this I was into rollerblading
0: of... as well, actually. Yeah. <laughs> cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 So much, so much joy going fast, being outside and playing. Um, but also really hearing the story mm-hmm. that your mom and your dad kind of had different perspectives of it and that your sister, had a different mode of being and so maybe a lot of different Mm -hmm. conflicting energies and not sure what your place was or how to be
0: exactly yeah totally true and um yeah but you're right now that you're saying about this the the rollerblading and the bmxing and all of that stuff it really like being fast there's something about being fast and doing all these things on wheels that really made me feel alive. And I had a lot of injuries. (laughs) I remember also as a child, lots of injuries, lots of scars Mm -hmm. on my body from being a wild child.
1: (laughs) How do you think the skateboarding and the rollerblading has contributed to your love of surfing now as an adult? (laughs)
0: Yeah, you know, I actually, yeah, well, currently I'm not surfing because I've been having this shoulder injury, um, for a few months and that's been really hard, actually. <laughs> and it's still sometimes hard, but I've surrendered to it, I think by now. Um, I feel like what, yeah, actually there is a connection there somehow, um, of riding something and yes, the speed and learning something and wanting to get better at it just because, you know, it's surfing is one of those things in life that it's just play. I'm not even that amazing at it. You know, I just love doing it. And, um, and I don't like big waves still. I like my waves to be three or four foot. Like that's perfect for me, you know? And I like longboarding and, um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely just Play and, and it's the same with skateboarding and, and I still have a skateboard and I have the, I have a surf skateboard and I did a workshop a couple of months ago as well. And it's still so much fun and it's so good to be reminded of, you know, just what I love doing as a child and that it's still fun to do as an adult because there's no goal. Like I'm not, I don't want to impress anyone. I just like doing it just for the sake of doing it. And and that's something, I guess, that we as adults, we don't incorporate play in that regard enough, I think, or I just don't. Um, and so it's great to just embrace these activities more, Um the ones where there's no ulterior motive to them. <laughs> it's just because they feel good, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think that's what really stands out to me because there's a – another parallel reality of skateboarding and rollerblading as a child, but then wanting to be competitive in those flowy Mm -hmm. fast sports as an adult. And so what I'm actually really appreciating Mm. about you right now is that you maintained, at least it sounds like a degree of lightness and just playfulness with the sports versus Mm. letting them get hijacked by some type of competitive
0: adult behavior. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, the thing is with surfing, I just had to realize at some point, um, I'm just, yeah, there's a limit to as how far I want to go on my surfboard and how far I'm willing to risk in terms of fear. And, and I find it the, one of the most humbling activities out there is, I find is surfing. And so, mm-hmm. um, and that was a really good lesson for me um, several years ago now when I started out surfing and realizing that I just, I got to go at the speed of my nervous system and what, Mm. you know, what my nervous system feels comfortable with and not push myself too hard. Um, because that would push me outside of my, you know, window of tolerance way too much. And I'm not prepared to, um, suffer the consequences anymore. I just want to have fun. And I always, I always say, or I read it somewhere, you know, years ago that the person, um, like surfing is all about having fun and the person that has the most fun is the one that catches the most waves. And so then I was like, well, it's, if it's all about just catching waves, then I might as well just stick to what is fun. And that is riding a longboard and riding you know, smaller waves and stuff like that. And uh, there's no Mm -hmm. part of me anymore that needs to prove anything. Maybe it's also age, you know, I'm 39 now. I'm just like, whatever,
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) just
0: don't care anymore.
1: Mm, Thank you. So this nervous system awareness with surfing, have you had, have you always had this of knowing to stay within your window of tolerance?
0: I wish, (laughs) I wish, but no, it's really something that, came through, um, over the last, I don't know, several years, but, and it keeps, you know, I, I keep working on my, um, autonomic awareness and somatic awareness. And it's, it's really a process also for me, even though I teach it now, but, you know, coming from living in a body where I didn't really feel like I was living in a body and it was so, I was so dissociated and disconnected from it. And I definitely, um, went way beyond my capacities a lot in life to either prove something to others or to myself or to, I don't know, just not knowing better to, yeah. And, um, or chase any other sort of emotion or success or, um, and so, yeah, it's definitely been a long journey to get to where I am today.
1: Mm. Wow. Can Can you describe mm. a little bit more what it was like to not be in your body? I, I'm assuming there's a ton of people mm. around the world who will have a similar felt experience, but maybe have never put those words to it because obviously we are living in our bodies, but sometimes we're mm-hmm. not fully embodied. Um, so can you break that down of how that experience <sighs> felt for you and what it looked like?
0: mm Yeah. Well, for one, it looked like, um, that I remember being in one of my first yoga classes more than 10 years ago now. And I, it was then that I realized I actually had a body and it was really difficult for me in the beginning, um, to do any of the asanas because I didn't have a a whole lot of proprioception, meaning I didn't really know where my limbs were in space <laughs> mm-hmm. and so i um it took some time for me to grasp what the teachers were instructing um, and that now looking back was you know classic disconnection from my body and just not feeling my body and um and then and then there was another time. Where we did pranayama and when I realized, wow, I have a breath. <laughs> I, never, mm. I was never aware of my breathing before. And that blew my mind when I realized I had a breath that I could watch and observe and also actually change. And, um, and so that was that. And then also being disconnected from my body looked like, um, having a lot of injuries <laughs> in terms of, breaking bones and having accidents and yeah, I mean, when you live from the neck up and um, there's little connection to anything from the neck down, um, you're clumsy. <laughs> and um, so I had a lot of bruises and I had, yeah, accidents and all sorts of things. Um, or I break a lot of my small toes. (laughs) Um, so that would happen just all the time. It's so funny now looking back, just, yeah. Um, I just wasn't quite there. I just wasn't fully present in my body, you know, and, Mm. or in the moment. And yeah, when you're not fully present in your body, it's really hard to be fully present in the moment. Um, and then what it also looked like, um, because, yeah, it wasn't really safe and comfortable for me to, to feel my body was that I just, just distracted myself in all sorts of ways, let it be drugs and alcohol and chasing a lot of these peak experiences, these very cathartic experiences to just feel something. Cause I was so Hmm. numb to the subtler sensations. And so when I eventually did Hmm. somatic psychotherapy, And she started asking me, oh, so how does that feel in your body as you talk about this? I'm like, I'm not feeling anything. (laughs) What do you mean? What does that feel like in my body? And I just, I couldn't even connect to what I was sensing in my body. And I don't know if it was just numb or I just didn't have that relationship yet to my body. And even the things that I was feeling, they didn't feel worthy of even Notice it, n- noticing them really, or to, to, to even share them or put them into words. Like I didn't understand the whole concept of relating to my body and, and, and having a somatic awareness. And mm-hmm. so I got really annoyed in the beginning and I didn't sign up to work with her because I knew she was a somatic psychotherapist. It just turns out that that's what she was. <laughs> she was a great Great therapist. I worked with her for five years and so we did come <laughs> a long way. Oh gosh. Yeah. Ah, uh, it was a long, long journey. Um, because, uh, I just didn't know what she meant by feeling and sensing in the beginning. I just couldn't do it. And,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and it, yeah, it took years to mm-hmm. develop that awareness and to slowly wake my body up. Um, And then eventually I discovered breath work and, um, or actually, let me, let me go back. Um, cause what it also looked like, I guess when, when, when we're disconnected from our bodies, we don't really feel emotions fully. And I didn't allow myself to feel emotions fully. I was really good at suppressing emotions of distracting myself from my emotions and it, they never felt safe, especially sadness didn't feel safe at mm-hmm. all. I always felt like if I allowed myself to feel too sad, then I would get sucked into the sadness and I would get swallowed up in my body or I would die sort of that what mm-hmm. I was scared of unconsciously. And, um, but I, I, I had to go through a lot of breakups and a lot of just horrible, toxic dating situations that kept on <laughs> um, just pushing me beyond my capacity to feel emotions. And, um, and I never learned until I started working with a somatic psychotherapist, I never learned how to really feel emotions in a way that it felt safe for me to do so. Um, and so I guess it's a whole smoothie of things, right. When, when we're disconnected from our bodies, when, um, when, when we disassociate, then on the one hand, you know, yes, it, it plays out in, you know, yoga and whatnot. Um, but also, uh, in the way that we, Deal with emotions or not deal with them um, in the way that we use substances and, and other ways to to not feel, um, and so then yeah, it wasn't until well the 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 therapy was amazing, but then it wasn't until breath work um, until I discovered breath work that I fully allowed myself to connect to my body. And when I talk breathwork, mm-hmm. when I say breathwork, I mean, in the beginning, it was the more transformational kind, it, you know, the more cathartic kind, um, the deep dive sessions, conscious connected breathing, um, and which I love because I needed that cathartic, um, experience. And I was really drawn to teachers who taught it and guided the sessions in a way, um, where, yeah, it, uh, where things became really intense and I needed that intensity. And it -hmm. it took some time again, as I was starting to develop this deeper relationship to my body to then also, um, open myself up to, uh, breathwork practices and, um, more gentle, gentler styles also of transformational breathwork, um, where I didn't have to go so deep into the intensity. Um, uh, to feel something or to to yeah to experience um something and and feel the effect of it but yeah it it was really the breath that connected me mm. fully to my body it acted like a bridge um because i was so stuck in my mind and just thinking and thinking and thinking. And I guess that's another sort of symptom of being disconnected from the body is just that rumination on and on and on and on. Cause there's so much Mm. energy up there. And, um, the bridge was really this bridge, this safe bridge for me to, Oh, okay. I can be with my breath. And actually the more I can be with my breath, the more, I'm in my body. Mm. (laughs) Oh. And so um it was it was a really it was step by step journey. And um and here we are today. And yeah, wow. (laughs) What a wild ride to land Mm. in my body.
1: (laughs) Wow, Connie. Thank you for sharing more of that story. And I, I mean I can relate on so many levels just that that epiphany moment of like, I have a breath and I have a body and it's mm-hmm. full of emotions and sensations and it's a whole slew of new languages that you have to learn. It's like mm. this foreign territory mm-hmm. that's been with us our whole life, but we just have never quite looked at. Mm. Um, so yeah. really thank you for peeling yeah. back those layers a little bit. And I'm curious from your perspective with both your own personal journey and then all the the various modalities that you've studied and now teach and facilitate from your perspective, why is it that we get so disembodied? So how how does a child Mm. who's skateboarding and playing soccer and living free turn into an adult Mm -hmm. who doesn't even realize there's something happening from the neck down? Mm. Yeah. Like you said, it's a smoothie. I
0: think in many cases, Yeah. Yeah. smoothie, yeah. Um, I think in many cases and also in my case, it was a matter of, um, well, for one, having a, a, growing up in an environment where, um, feeling your emotions, um, wasn't encouraged. So that was one thing, um, or, um, appreciated, (laughs) um, where also, um, you know, uh, in my family anyway, the, the way that emotions were expressed, um, wasn't very loving also, uh, especially anger and rage and, um, those emotions and sadness wasn't, or fear, those emotions weren't really supported very much. Um, Hmm. and so I think, and I think that's the case in so many, um, families, um, that there is unhealthy ways that anger is expressed. And then sadness and fear, our caretakers just can't hold space for us. And, you know, when we feel, um, those emotions. And so then we learn because as Gabor Mate also says, um, attachment wins over authenticity. So because we want to stay attached and connected, um, to our caretakers, um, we then suppress. Who we really are, um, which also means, you know, the emotions that we experience, um, so that we stay connected and we stay attached. And that's a evolutionary, um, sort of, uh, survival response, right? It's just how we're wired. Um, and we will... Change who we are. We will, um, suppress our expression so that we stay in connection to the people that are most important for our survival, which are our parents. Um, and Mm. so that was one thing. And I think that also led, in my case, to, um, suppressing my sexual orientation, my gender identity and just, um, really feeling so much shame around that from an early age. And when I, you know, think back now, I mean, it was pretty clear and obvious that I was a queer person, (laughs) little person (laughs) from a young age. And it just, it never felt right for me to explore that. I felt so much shame around that. And so I suppressed so many emotions. And so by suppressing emotions, we automatically disconnect from our bodies and, um, and it also just doesn't feel safe to mm-hmm. feel any of those emotions. And so we disconnect even further and we disassociate and, um, and also by then, and also that was the case in my family as well. There was a lot of emphasis on, you know, rationality and using our minds and being good at school and, that sort of stuff. And, and so I learned that being up here is good. <laughs> right. And being, you know, uh, being present below the neck, that was not so good. Didn't feel so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, yeah. And then a lot of that shame and shame is a, is an emotion that really doesn't feel good. I mean, it's yeah. Right. I mean, so many of us, we try to really avoid feeling shame, And it's, uh, but it's such a stress response in our bodies Mm -hmm. is, is shame and, and suppressing any emotion is a stress response. Um, cause it's just charge, right? It's, it's Mm -hmm. an activation and it's, it's just energy. It's life force. And when we suppress, um, that life force, I mean, it, yeah. And then it gets stuck. And so anyway, it's, um, I mean, there's so much talk these days about how emotions, Um, and those that we don't express turn into, you know, mental health issues and physical health issues and whatnot. And that was definitely also, um, the case for me. Um, so yeah, I think trauma, obviously, um, I didn't necessarily experience any shock trauma for me. It was mainly, um, (laughs) developmental trauma or Just attachment wounding. Um, Definitely also some birth trauma because I had the umbilical cord around my neck and then, and obviously that's super scary. So, I mean, I guess I, in that moment, as I was being born, I already constricted my body to not feel um, what was there. And then I was put into an incubator um, for a few days as well. And Ah, oh, gosh. I mean, I think we really underestimate the effect of, uh, birth traumas. Uh, many people don't know about their birth and how it went down. They never asked. Um, and then a lot of times, as it was in my case too, it was, Oh, yeah. uh just a little umbilical cord around your neck. And oh, I was just a few days in the incubator, you know, just no big deal. <laughs> and it, took a long time for me to realize, Oh, actually that's a pretty big deal. That's when it, mm. that, you know, and so for many people, birth is the moment that we already start to disconnect from our bodies. Mm. Um, and that's, can be the moment that our breathing pattern changes because you know how so many people and and also breath coaches, they say, Oh, you know, just look at a baby because look at how they're breathing and that's how we're meant to breathe. And um, cause they, you know, yes, many babies definitely have nice diaphragmatic breathing going on, but actually many babies also had a traumatic birth, um, or were in the womb of a mother that was in a sympathetic nervous system state a lot or in shutdown and, um, you know, had a lot of uh, adrenaline and cortisol running through her body. And so, um, that influences us early on. And so our breathing pattern changes. Um, and that so many babies actually don't have a healthy breathing pattern. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So, uh, so many different ways that we can, um, that we can get disconnected from, from our bodies, I guess by, by, f- I guess if we break it down, um, there's something that our bodies react to right? As a response to a stressor or something to some experience. And that doesn't feel good for us. And then we're, um, yeah, there's no one there to co-regulate with us so that we can actually stay in our bodies and be with what's there because it's safe because there's someone there that can hold that with us as children. And that's what we need. And if we don't get that, then, um, we don't learn how to stay in our bodies with all of these emotions um and sensations um in a way that um, we can actually process them fully. And so, yeah, here we are having to figure it out as adults and finding our way back home into our bodies.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. Connie, thank you so much for all of that. There's so many layers that we could pull on uh, what this reminds me of just yesterday, Johnny and I were having a conversation He's in the emotional, the curriculum design for his course on emotions. And we were talking about like, what is an example that any human can relate to when it comes to understanding emotions and what they really are. And I had an image of like a child in a grocery store throwing a tantrum or in their house with their family, super upset and angry and how someone who doesn't understand emotion, how they might respond to that scenario by shaming, by meeting them in in aggression, by trying to quiet them down, sending them to their room, embarrassing them, doing whatever they can to stop it versus someone who understands emotions and that it really is just energy in motion. It is this charge that is so natural. Anger, grief, rage, sadness. These are natural energies that live inside of us and they just want to Come up and out. They just need to move through, you know, they call it the emotional cycle. It needs to complete its cycle. So let's say a caregiver who understands that and their child is throwing a tantrum or is angry or crying, you know, well, like you said, hold space for that child to finish that emotional charge. And my understanding of things so far is that if an emotion is actually allowed to fully go through, it only is there for like 90 seconds. Like it doesn't take very long for the full thing to move through unless we're attaching story to it and then getting lost and why it's happening and yada, yada, which I think kids are probably better at not doing that in the beginning if they're just given a presence and attention and knowing that they're not wrong for feeling things. And um, I know my family of origin, so
0: many families. And so many of us grew up with parents who didn't know how to fully be present in their bodies or really be with their emotions and in a healthy way. And, and so, you know, I mean, how are they supposed to then hold the space for a little being if they can't hold that space for themselves? Right. And so I don't even think, I mean, I think it's important as we do therapy and whatnot to go through that phase of being angry at our parents for failing to, um, to, to meet our needs. Right. Um, as little beings. And, um, because yeah, like you said, it's such, it's just natural. It's, it's natural need of a little child to be co-regulated. Like we need that. And I think it's until the, until the three years old, we physiologically, our nervous system cannot regulate itself. It just not, is not, it can't do it. <laughs> we don't have, it's like you, you put a two-year-old, uh, you know, in in the driver's seat of a car and you're like, drive, like how is it supposed to do that? Like the feet, like the legs, they don't even reach the gas and brake pedal. And so, so if we don't get any of that nurturing and that, you know, care, um, from our caregivers, then yeah, it's hard. But, and at the same time, also getting to a place in our own healing journey where we can feel that empathy for our parents as well and be like, I, I get that. Yeah, I know enough about their biography and their story and their traumas to know why they couldn't meet my needs as uh, a little uh human.
1: Yeah. A part of your story, Connie, that really moves me that you spoke about beautifully on Instagram. It's a post that I read this morning Mm of like your coming out story of being Mm -hmm. queer and acknowledging that to yourself and to your family and to the world. And you said something really potent, which was that potentially being queer and having gone through a coming out process gave you an advantage to really step into like your full expression in life. And although it was Mm. a very challenging and difficult moment and teacher,
0: Mm -hmm. the sense I have
1: is that there's real liberation on the other side of that. And you spoke to having a family who it really wasn't, it wasn't a option on the menu to be queer or to talk about gender identity growing up. And so this suppression of a core aspect of, your beingness. And then mm-hmm. just that, that release, I'm sure of energy as you fully owned it. And I'm, I'm sure it was a gradual incremental journey to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious well, if you could unpack that yeah. maybe a little bit for us. And then I, I have a couple mm-hmm. coming out stories myself that <laughs> really, uh, felt, yeah. I, I just felt aligned. I, yeah. I understood where you were coming from.
0: Cool. Yeah. No, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, whew, it was, that was, uh, how do you even put that into words? Like what that meant for me in my own evolution and healing. It was huge Um, because being in the closet um and I tried hard to be straight. No one can blame me for not trying. <laughs> um And I was in relationships with men and I looked very much more, like a femme woman would look like, um, with long hair and tight jeans and, and all of that stuff. And so for so many years, I was completely suppressing my authenticity and who I really wanted to be and uh, how I wanted to express myself and who I wanted to love and what I wanted to experience, um, in relationship and sexually. And, and I did it because, I just couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it any other way. There was so much shame. Like you couldn't believe it. And I was in love with so many women and and best friends. And I mean, for years and years and years, it was so painful and I could not for, na- I, I just couldn't admit to myself that, oh, <laughs> you're queer. It just wasn't, just couldn't do it. And so, yeah, it, it took, um, it took a lot for me to come out but it also it really ruined my body you know in my yeah. early 20s it's when it started um i think it was maybe like 22 23 um i started to have gut issues um my digestion started playing up it got to the point where i could barely eat anything and wouldn't feel horrible afterwards um i went to all the doctors i did all the tests um and nothing they couldn't find anything had gastroscopies, had all, all of it. And, and then my skin, I had really bad eczema, um, on my head. And so I just had hair falling out. Um, and it was terrible. And, and, but I, at the time, I mean, you know, there was no Instagram. There was I I don't even think there was YouTube yet. And so I, there's, I didn't, know what was going on. And I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't really just Google what was happening with me and that whole, um, what is now almost, uh, yeah, like mainstream of mind body, uh, the mind body connection and, um, and, uh, and connecting our psychology with our, our physical health and stuff like that just wasn't the thing back then. Anyway, not in my world anyway. And so, Um, I then eventually, finally (laughs) had my coming out, but only because I finally met a woman who also fell in love with me and, um, and she was Australian. We met in India. This is in 2009. And, um, I eventually ended up in Australia with her. And she was, yeah. And through that I had, uh, I was able to finally tell the world, yo, I love women. I'm, I'm in love with a woman and I was so happy. It was, it was really, it was huge to be able to finally, finally admit it to myself, admit it to the world, to my family, Um, and to love someone and be open about my emotions and my feelings. And even just talking about it now, I still feel, um, uh, emotions arising because it was, it was so pivotal and and huge for me. And then, um, I, and then actually just a couple of months into the relationship is when all my health issues disappeared. (laughs) gone, Mm. uh, psoriasis was gone. Eczema was gone. Um, my gut issues were gone. And so, um, that was my first experience (laughs) of the mind-body connection and how it's all related. And so, um, so when I, yeah, so then I have my coming out and, and what you mentioned earlier about, um, this post that I wrote, um, is that it really, (sighs) It was such a huge liberation that anything that came after that, um, in terms of living my authentic truth and really expressing who I am and doing what I want to do, it was, it was like a walk in the park because the biggest thing (laughs) that I'd suppressed for so many years, you know, that I was so ashamed of, um, it coming out as queer and that liberation. And that was the worst thing for me. Like the, it was the, my biggest fear and I did it and people didn't hate me for it. <laughs> you know, they still loved me. My mom still loved me, my sister, my friends, you know, and so it was big. And, and so since then it just, yeah, it, I mm. really feel like it is the superpower because everything else was easy. <laughs> I just didn't care anymore. I'd already, I mean, showing the world that I was queer in a world that's not very queer friendly in a world where there's still so much homophobia and transphobia and where, you know, like just a couple of days ago, there were many um queer people in this uh, queer club in Colorado um killed in a shooting. You know, we don't, we still don't live in a safe world for queer people. And so, you know, knowing that and yet sharing who I am in that way with the world and, um, and doing that over and over and over again, because it's not just one coming out, it's a coming out over and over and over again for the rest of my life, because there are just, aren't enough queer people out there yet. It's still a heteronormative world. And so people assume you're straight. And, um, and when you go to a doctor or when you, you know, whatever, like, Eventually I'm going to say, well, um, my, and I don't even want to say my partner and I, um, we started just, we're not married yet, but we just started saying, oh, my wife, because we want to make it clear that it's not just a business partner and partner could be male or female or non-binary. But so she started saying wife and, uh, I was like, we're not married yet. You might, <laughs> because they're asking me first, <laughs> if I'm married." I but we just started calling each other wife and, um, cause we, yeah, we want to make it clear that, um, we're Mm. in a partnership that's serious. And, um, and so that definitely was, um, yeah, something, a, um, a process that helped me to embrace all other parts of me fully in that respect. And, um, Mm. and in that sense, I do think there is an, I have a, um, an advantage over, um, non-queer people, (laughs) um, because I've gone through that and I've survived it and Mm -hmm. that's all that matters. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you for your courage and your passion and for just demonstrating what it looks like to claim, your wholeness claim your entirety claim all facets of your being including the parts that create the most shame or fear or are the most disowned
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i completely agree with you that you have an advantage because you've gone through that type of initiatory process uh, mm-hmm. and if it's okay i'd love to just share like two of my own little stories obviously go for it um i'm i'm not queer i am I am a straight woman, but I I lived in the closet for seven years as I lived a double life as a stripper in my twenties. And Mm -hmm. granted that wasn't my whole life. It was just a period in my life, but it created so much shame and fear around being caught and discovered that I wove an elaborate I I wove an elaborate lie together to keep the two lives distinct and separate. Mm -hmm. You know, so there was Kelly Monday through Thursday version of Kelly who was straight A student, golden girl at college, prestigious business internships, you know, definitely following a certain traditional path of success. And then there was the Friday, Saturday night, Kelly, who went by a different name. I went by Tori and I would host men at luxury bachelor parties and have this wild other provocative experience. And I was so afraid of people at my college and my mother or just my whole family really finding out, but predominantly (laughs) my mother. That it just seemed better for me to hold it as a lie and I thought I could do, just do that my whole life. I'll just never own up to this. Mm. And then after seven years, it felt like I had split my psyche into two and I was, mm-hmm. you know, I just felt fractured from the inside out and was exploding with pain. My cystic acne was exploding on my face and I was getting depressed and anxious and just in this constant perpetual state of fear. So I can relate to the mind body connection of when we're repressing a certain aspect of ourselves, it comes out in some form asking for attention and there's no better way to grab our attention than some type of physical pain or illness. And I personally believe that skin conditions, especially if they're on your face and you you, know, you pointed to your head when you talked about eczema, like it is so front and center
0: mm-hmm. to
1: your expression is, is your face, is your head is this thing that people are looking at day in, day out. And I couldn't find answers to my acne through the traditional pathways. I did everything except Accutane because I knew that that wasn't actually going to solve it. I knew that was just a Band-Aid and it was a really intense Band-Aid. And it was finally someone, some energy healer along my journey who said, you know, I think it's the self-loathing that you have. And like, you're not fully accepting yourself that that is causing your acne.
0: Mm. And
1: that blew my mind. It blew my paradigm Mm. of what health was, of what illness was. And I resisted that at first and said, no, I love myself. I totally do. And then I realized I didn't, I didn't fully Mm. love and accept myself. And as I began a self-love and self-healing journey, I gradually did what I call micro truth telling, which was my version of coming out in a gradual way that didn't smash open my window of tolerance too much. And it it started with me telling uh, a stranger on an airplane that I was a stripper on the (laughs) weekends. And that guy, I don't know him at all, was like, tell me, it's like, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. I want to know more. Tell me your stories. And that broke me open too. Like, what do you you mean? Like, you still accept me even though I don't know you? And his (laughs) his stoke and enthusiasm for it and celebration was like, okay, well, who could I tell next? And then I I told a Mm -hmm. friend from college who I knew would love and support me no matter what. And he loved and supported me. And so I just titrated up through various forms of truth telling to the point where I eventually told my mother directly on a phone call. And then I eventually told all of social media, which was thousands of people Mm. at the time when I had a bigger Instagram account. And my story is a little different. I didn't feel full relief right away. Um, Mm -hmm. it it took probably another year after coming out to actually feel that sense of, well, cool. Like if I just did the scariest thing, then I'm good. I'm free. And all the other things I was terrified of most... Importantly, creating as a creator and putting my dreams and visions out in the world, which was the other thing that would cripple me time and time again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like the fact that we're having this podcast interview is because I know I've already done the scariest thing and I was still loved in the process. And <laughs> I became mm. more whole in that process. Mm. <laughs> mm, thank you.
0: Yeah, I remember when you shared on social media, actually. Um, was this a couple of years ago? Maybe something like that? It
1: was about two years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And I was also, is it almost a bit like an anti-climax when you're like, you're telling everybody and it's totally cool for everyone. And everyone's just like, yeah, awesome. Yo, <laughs> next. <laughs>
1: exactly <laughs> I was like oh all right well this thing I've been harboring for so long that has called me so much anguish I guess yeah. it really is not that big of a deal anyway exactly. yeah. and the whole irony of the situation is that the people in our lives you know they might have their judgments about it they might have judgments about what a stripper means or what it means to be queer they may not agree with it they may not want it for themselves
0: mm-hmm
1: but i think ultimately we are tech, like deep down we're all calibrated toward desiring truth and honesty mm-hmm. and authenticity and so yeah. when someone claims that it is in my opinion a just a bold yeah. step for for everybody to do the same
0: totally and also coming back to nervous system regulation suppressing our authentic authenticity our authenticity is highly dysregulating for the nervous system Because it creates this charge in our bodies and, um, that in essence, um, throws our nervous system off balance. So we're in a constant, uh, stress response. Um, and so are people who are in jobs, they don't want to be in, who are suppressing, following their passion, um, sort of people like me who were in the closet for so many years, people like you who suppress or or don't share a big part of, you know, who they are and their lives. And, um, and that in itself creates dysregulation in the nervous system. And, um, which is also why then, you know, our bodies freak out. (laughs) They're like, I don't know what to do with all this charge. (laughs) Let me just, uh, I don't know, eczema (laughs) or gut issues. Um,
1: yeah, it's an implosion from the inside out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really is, um, and it, it th- that lens, the nervous system lens, polyvagal lens, really helped me. You know, looking at my my biography and my life story, it's like, well, holy shit, no wonder <laughs> I had all these issues and I was, you know, dealing with depression, anxiety, and health issues and and whatnot um, over and over again. Um, because yeah, it just all makes sense. <laughs>
1: mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to take this topic and just pivot over to this idea of creative embodiment and how as we embody ourselves more, as we go from the head down into the body, we get below the neck and we start to really feel ourselves, how that might track onto being a creative person and sharing your gifts with the world. And, you know, you've been a, I call it a prolific creator for many years. You had a YouTube channel and a podcast and a blog, and you've written a book, you're an author. And my perspective of you is that you just have this deep desire to create. And you even have a course, which I took called create as you are. And this idea of like, (laughs) we are all creative Mm -hmm. beings. And yet, You know, in my own personal story, not actually being able to sustainably create in a way that felt good and kind of going through Mm -hmm. these cycles of idea, manic creation, and then burnout and burning it down and then hibernating and disappearing for a while. And and that was like the last 10 years, my cycle up until really now, because I've, I've learned more about the nervous system and embodiment. Mm. And how it all plays a role into our ability to create. And so I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about your own creative journey
0: mm-hmm.
1: and how you're relating to it now with what you know about embodiment and, uh, mm. nervous system regulation.
0: Such a good question because I, I just had a, a session with my somatic psychotherapist, uh, today, different psych- psychotherapist <laughs> than the one before. <laughs> um, but she also works with Somatic Experiencing and NARM and, and all the things. And, uh, we spoke about how, we. What, what did we talk about? Well, anyway, the gist of it is that I've been thinking a lot about, um, pursuing a career or building businesses or becoming a creator like I did, you know, 10 years ago. um, Putting myself out there on YouTube, sharing, you know, a lot of vulnerable stuff and on Instagram and all the things. And what part of that was actually a trauma response rather mm. than me just following my passions, you know, and I've, cause today in my, in my therapy session, what came up was that I, as, as I was growing up and I had a bigger sister and I really looked up to her, even though she was very different and we're still very different, but, um, I, st- I looked up to her very much. I wanted to be like her, but at the same time, we had a really tumultuous <laughs> relationship with each other growing up and, and then I didn't really feel seen in, in my family and, um, I didn't feel validated by my sister and, uh, i never felt safe to, safe to really express myself there was a lot of shame around that I, yeah it didn't feel seen, seen didn't feel heard and so i left early uh, when i was 15 um to go abroad and never really came back home to live there again and and so f- for me expression and using my camera and writing it was always something that i that came really natural to me um even as i was really young And I just loved it. I loved expressing myself creatively um in a way. And those were times where there was no social media and I didn't have anyone to compare myself with, which was awesome looking back, you know. And but anyway, I was really I just loved cameras, um, and I loved writing. And uh and then eventually, yeah, the internet came about and and I saw the opportunity to share my creations uh, with the world and um and so but looking back now you know and sometimes i want to de- delete all of the videos on my youtube channel and stuff because they're not reflective of who i am anymore and at the same time i'm like well they are who i am because <laughs> that's who i was and it's part of my journey of of being who i am today and and part of my healing journey but Um, there is definitely this part of me that, um, needed to express myself in public, um, and needed this sense. I needed to feel seen and heard, and I needed that resonance from my followers and have other people tell me, you know, oh, you're amazing. Uh, love your videos, love your writing, whatever, because, that was like, it was always almost compensating for the need that didn't get met during childhood. And that is so mm-hmm. clear to me now because over the last few years, as I've gone even deeper on my own healing journey, that's been going for so long now, but it continues. And, you know, as I've also been in a healthy, um, conscious relationship with my partner over the last two and a half years, and which is my first truly healthy relationship, And so I've been really in a place where I've been able to heal my nervous system to really come back into nervous system regulation, widen my window of tolerance, um, to heal those parts of me that, um, felt rejected and abandoned all the time. And that kept chasing unavailable women and, you know, um, finding myself in in all these toxic constellations and codependency and whatnot. And so being in a place now where I'm regulated, I, and also having discovered the breath and then following the breath (laughs) to becoming uh, a teacher and guide and facilitator and, um, working more in that capacity. And that was a very natural process. So that's kind of also pulled me away from you know, my more creative writing and my YouTube videos and my more yeah creative outlets, um, with my camera. But so that, that's something played into it, but it's, I think it's also been my more regulated state and, um, having integrated that part of me that needed to use social media, um, and a blog and YouTube to feel seen and heard, And so Mm -hmm. now, um, I, I still have this, uh, desire to express myself and I want to get back to being more creative. And, um, as Connie, the creator, you know, apart from Connie, the breath worker and somatic coach and stuff, but, um, and it's really just, um, yeah, it's just not having enough time in the day really, but. I know there will be more time, uh, hopefully soon and, and that I want to dedicate to my writing and making videos and podcasts and whatnot, but it'll come from a very different place within myself. Um, hmm. and so yes, it's been a very amazing, exciting, uh, journey as a creator. And yes, I was very prolific because I just, I loved creating. I had a lot of energy. That needed to somehow, <laughs> I don't know, um, be or shared with the world. Um, and I just found that, um, well, also because of that, you know, my issues in relationships and I felt a lot of loneliness and sadness, um, years ago now. But, you know, when let's say after my first breakup from that woman that I was with, uh, we were together for about two and a half years. So this is 2012 was the breakup which was just shattered, shattered me to a million pieces in my world and everything. And then I had, you know, the years after that were some of my most prolific years in terms of being a blogger and YouTuber and digital nomad and building mm-hmm. businesses and this and that because I really used a lot of that pain and loneliness and sadness and grief to create. And it was my outlet mm-hmm. and it really helped me to metabolize a lot of, um, a lot of that pain. Um, and it made me feel connected, uh, building these social media platforms and having followers and stuff and connecting to them and connecting to other people who maybe feel the same way. Um, and so, yeah, it's looking back now and reflecting as I talk, (laughs) um, it's quite fascinating. Um, it's something that I've been trying to put into words, also in writing I started writing a piece on this of like, you know, the, the idea of um, our, you know, our callings that we call whatever it is that we call a calling and, and are following our purpose and our careers. Are they just expressions of a trauma response or to what extent I'm not saying, <laughs> you know, all or nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I say, I, I still enjoy, you know, having a camera and, um, making films and stuff. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's just what I felt alive right now to share.
1: It does. And it brings so much up in me and it makes me reflect a little bit on what I'm doing right now and wild on purpose and what I want to create. And it is around authentic expression. And so, you know, there's some parallels here. And I know that deep down, I wasn't able to fully express my wildness, my, my creativity. My bigness growing up and it, what it brings up is, is like gratitude for this idea of the sacred wound and that Mm -hmm. nobody gets through life without some version of woundings and trauma and a repression of their fullness, their wholeness. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like whatever big slice of the pie you got dealt in this lifetime that you're healing through your own you know, desire to be whole is also the gift that ultimately you give back to others who are, who are carrying a similar sacred wound. And I'm I'm glad you didn't delete all Mm, your videos on, on YouTube because I I like to imagine that we're just walking this like spiralic path and, you know, you're walking five years above previous Connie, but those videos that you recorded are speaking to maybe Connie 10 years ago or Connie 15 years ago. And there's still so many people in the world who feel the way you did 10, Mm. 10 plus Mm. years ago. And (laughs) I I had a healer tell me one time when it came to building my business, she's like, just keep climbing your mountain and leave breadcrumbs for other people who are like learning, who want to learn the same things as you. But eventually you'll get yeah. so far down the trail of your mountain that you'll look back and be like, Whoa, I would not eat those breadcrumbs anymore because they're just so old. Oh, just, yes. You've learned so much, <laughs> yeah. but there's other, <laughs> but there's other people just beginning at that, at the trailhead, you know, yeah. who yeah. might need exactly what and you said And They really savor those breadcrumbs. <laughs>
0: Yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> I'm curious though um about cuz you shared this post on Instagram today. We briefly spoke about it before we hit record. Um and you were talking about and and you just mentioned it too. Um of you know going through these phases of um you know hyper creativity and then coming back down and being in creative shutdown. And I'm curious if you can share a bit more on that in terms of why, why do you think that happened so often for you and what helped you get out of it?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Connie. I love ta- turning the tables. Um, Well, it's interesting <laughs> earlier you said life is like a smoothie and that you're a smoothie. I actually use the metaphor of soup. Uh, and so <laughs> there's so many different components to this. And I have to say, That my inability to successfully be an entrepreneur despite wanting to be one since I was probably 18 or 19, so that's 14-ish years of not doing the thing you think you're here to do or the thing you think you're here to be, has led me down my healing path of like, well, what's wrong with me if I can't actually take all my millions of ideas? I mean, my friends used to know me as the idea girl. I'd walk into a party and they're like, all right, Kelly, like, what's the new invention? What's the new business plan? And that was cute for a long time. And then eventually that really wore me down of like, okay, well, how do I actually take idea into execution? You know, to the point where I studied entrepreneurship. In my final university when I got my bachelor's degree and won business plan competitions. And on paper, it was just like, this girl should be absolutely dynamite at the thing that she applies herself to. And I just kept flailing. And so despite having all the textbook information and even being surrounded by angel investors and very successful traditional entrepreneurs, it just never worked for me. And so I kept having to peel back the layers And, and I knew I didn't want a traditional job. I definitely had that from time to time and it just wore me down so quickly, which is ultimately why I think I stayed a stripper for so long because I worked two nights a week. It was dynamic energy. I got, I, I felt fully expressed and empowered and emboldened in that really unique way. And I made the same amount of money that lawyers do, right? Working two nights a week. So it, Mm. it like fostered my more entrepreneurial energetic ways of like needing to work and then rest and work and rest. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just been this never ending exploration of how do I align my visions and dreams that are within me with a tangible creation out in the world. And the the metaphor I've been working with, which may or may not make sense to some people is Do you remember as a kid, we would play the game where you'd like put the round ball in the round hole in the square cube in the cube hole and like you'd put things where they need to be. Mm -hmm. I call it my inner geometry of like the geometry of my dreams. And I've been trying to like figure out how do they actually fit with the way the world works and the way that I work and how do I actually like slide these things into their rightful place? And that has led me to look Mm -hmm. at everything from gene keys and human design and astrology to, you know, doing a lot of inner child healing around being an entrepreneur in business and money because my mom had a failed entrepreneurial business. um, When I was about four years old, she had to stop on her dreams. And it's, it's been this fascinating onion to peel back. Just through the inquiry of wanting to create, I've learned so much about how I am and what needed healing.
0: Mm. And,
1: you know, I'm really grateful that I got to marry a nervous system researcher and that Johnny has (laughs) brought so much awareness into my life around what is actually happening when I'm in a state of uh, sympathetic or shutdown. And gradually I was able to map the ways I approached entrepreneurship and the ways I approached creativity to these different phases of our nervous system or of polyvagal theory. Uh, and once I saw, I was like, Oh, I'm actually not wrong. I'm not a problem. I'm not broken. No one actually taught me the inner game of being an entrepreneur. And no one ever taught me how to actually inquire into myself of how can I build? How do I create? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm a projector in human design and I really love that modality. And it's been huge just to illuminate the projector side of things. Like I'm not here to grind and I'm not very great at like manifesting in the way that other people do. And so it's almost like mapping my own unique blueprint to create the things Mm. I want to create. And I have to do it in a way that is kind to my body, my nervous system, my history, my traumas, and my gifts and my talents and my strengths. And until Mm -hmm. I had a pretty comprehensive look at all of that, it was just like shooting in the dark. I was just trying to like walk down a hallway Mm -hmm. in the dark, hoping that the door was going to be open, you know, Mm -hmm. so I had to keep illuminating Mm -hmm. more sides of myself, integrating the shadow pieces, integrating the wounded pieces so that I could actually see the path forward. And a journey that, of course, that's going mm. to continue on uh, through mm. the creation of these projects, through the creative cycles of them. I'm, I'm actually working with uh, an amazing cyclical living coach. She's a cyclical living and embodiment coach who's helped me understand how to create an alignment to my menstrual cycle and my daily mm-hmm. energy yeah. cycles and and then the, the macro seasons of the world uh, mm-hmm. and just having that type of education changes the game and it actually makes me know oh, that it's possible. Yeah.
0: I love that cuz we are cyclical beings. First of all, thanks so much for sharing um mm-hmm. and for sticking with it and for digging deeper and, and illuminating all the shadow pieces. But yeah, we are cyclical beings and I think there's especially also as um people with a cycle with a moon cycle, um, with a menstrual cycle. I think there is a lot of, you know, I just remember on my own journey, like I would shame myself and be disappointed in myself when there were days in the month where I just didn't feel like creating or doing much for my business or putting myself out in social media, you know, and I couldn't put the two and two together until, yeah, I educated myself more on, the menstrual cycle and its connection to creativity and energy and all that stuff. And, um, if we, you know, if we look at it, especially, you know, people with a menstrual cycle, um, but generally, I mean, this capitalistic system is not really set up for nervous system regulation or, um, for cyclical living. Because <laughs> we're meant to be mm-hmm. on and we're meant to be creating all the time because everybody else is always creating. So we got to be creating and social media never stops. So we got to be creating a lot. And, um, and you know, reflecting on that, it's just like, fuck, like we're trying to coming back to, to your metaphor or analogy earlier about you know the game and we try to put the square into the square piece and it just doesn't fit because we're trying so hard as cyclical beings to be uncyclical (laughs) trying to put the square peg into the round hole it just doesn't work and 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 to find self-compassion right for ourselves um and kindness and like yo i got a (laughs) cycle and that's just what it is. And there's, there's days where I just, yeah, it's not that I expect them to come. I'm always a little bit surprised every month. Oh, I don't feel like posting anything. I don't feel like sharing. I don't feel like working. I just don't want to. And every time I check my, you know, I check on oh, day. oh, that's why I gotcha. Okay. Uh-huh. Don't need to feel bad. It's all good. <laughs> no shame.
1: Hmm. What you just reminded me of, this is a new insight for me, that everybody I learned about entrepreneurship from and business from were men who were at least 55 years old (laughs) at my university and in the angel group I worked for, probably average age 65, men who worked in traditional traditional kind of enterprises. And that was the model that I was trying to be successful on. And so it's been I mean, a really incredible unlearning journey and then relearning yes, the things that actually yes. matter.
0: Yes. Yeah. And so many of us, we learn from, you know, I did back then, I learned from the Gary Vaynerchucks and the, you know, the hustle, the hustle team and the type A's, the overachievers that are always on and Ah, oh, gosh, you know, now even also realizing how much being a type A overachiever personality is, is a trauma response in itself. <laughs> and, but mm-hmm. that's what I identified with at the time. And that was, yeah, my ideal way of creating and, and, and creating a business. And it's, it's fascinating how far we've come in that respect also. And that, I mean, there's still so long to go, um, in, because I think the idea of, and I think you also mentioned this earlier about creative seasons as well. Like, yes, we have our monthly cycle and that's rolling along um as it does, but then there's creative seasons and creativity comes and goes. It's like, uh, you just can't control that stuff. And capitalism and living in a, you know, uh, yes, male dominated or patriarchal society. I mean, it's just the world we live in. Um, is just not built for that. It doesn't support seasons, <laughs> the ups and downs, the, you know, following our intuitions, the, the, uh, I don't know, living in a way and creating in a way that's actually good for my nervous system. And so in that respect, I think we still have a long way to go because how do we, mm-hmm. how do we do the things we want to do? How do we make a living? How do we stay relevant, you know, um, in a, in a sense while these systems keep running the world and us. And so that's something that I've been reflecting on a lot, um, because Hmm. it's not easy. And I think we can cut ourselves some slack in that regard. Um, and also like just that drive of having to figure us out and, I don't know, like there's so much pressure in wanting to find our passion and our calling. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's just so much pressure that we put ourselves under. And yes, the comparison thing, you know, with social media and the, and that, I think so many of us, we don't even realize the effects that has on us. And, and so mm-hmm. much of it is unconscious and lives in our shadow parts. And like, I didn't realize how much pressure I put myself under, um, in terms of my business and creating and the perfectionism until my partner pointed it out. And I was really resistant to it. And again, today my therapy session that came up as well. And I was like, it's so fascinating how we don't even, realize we don't recognize some of these shadow parts and how they work through us until someone reflects Mm. them back at us. And, and now I'm just bewildered by, wow, I put myself under so much pressure to perform, to be perfect to not be judged. Um, you know, and, and yet it was, um, it's wild. I'd never... I never noticed it. It was just normal for me to be under mm-hmm. so much pressure. I didn't under, I didn't realize I was living in a pressure cooker, <laughs> right? Until someone was like, yo, do you want to maybe take that lid off a little bit? <laughs> it was like, no, 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 no. Gotta stay in the pressure cooker. Let me stay in the pressure cooker. <laughs> Cause otherwise things are not going to work. And it's kind of like the frog, you know, that analogy of the frog in the hot water. You know that one? of how we um we uh that you put a frog in normal water and you slowly turn up the heat and and it won't and it, until the water boils and it will boil to death but if you boil the water and you throw a frog in it'll jump right out right mm. and so we don't even notice how we in, you know, as we go about our lives and we grow up and we get conditioned, we don't know that we live in prisons. We think that that's freedom (laughs) until someone's like, Hey, do you maybe just, there's a key. Do you want to maybe take the key and like open the door and actually liberate yourself?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, This maps (laughs) on so much to the framework that I shared with you, that cage feral wild and how from my mm. perspective, I think we start in cages that are that other people create, that society creates, that our family of origin creates, that yeah. the schooling system creates. And then we go through this journey of getting out of that as best as we can. But then we we're habituated to creating cages. So we can also create our own. And it looks yeah. maybe a little shinier, a little bit more aligned, a little bit more exciting. And it's just this series mm. of recognizing we're in cages getting out of it recognizing there, it's like the yeah. russian doll yeah. <laughs> situation yeah. of like oh, oh really there's, like another, there's another one in there oh,
0: <laughs> another person what wait another cage no way i didn't I see those I bars <laughs> i thought <laughs> i
1: was i thought i was whole and complete and done like oh that's what my 30s was yeah. for <laughs>
0: yeah yeah so true <laughs>
1: Well, Connie, I just want to check in. We're going to go over time a little bit. Do you have about another 10 more minutes?
0: Yeah, 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 let's do it.
1: Okay, all right, great. I'm really curious to um, dive into this idea of integrated attachment theory a little bit, which I know you're studying right now and Mm
0: -hmm.
1: how it sounds like you went from sort of toxic relationship to toxic relationship to toxic relationship and now into a healthy relationship. So I imagine that there's some history of insecure attachment, which I can really relate to. I've got an, an avoidant and disorganized attachment background Mm -hmm. and then what it's like to actually be existing in a secure relationship, which we're both in right now. I think that's super cool. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. how, just to kind of weave it all together, how your attachment strategies or the, The, yeah, attachment strategies that have been in your life, how that's also played a role in your creations. I actually Mm. started realizing that I had, Johnny shared with me one time, he's like, it's not just attachment styles, it's attachment strategies. Mm
0: -hmm. And so you'll
1: develop different strategies depending on who or what you're in relationship to. So I might have one attachment strategy with a certain family member. And then it dawned on me, I was like, I think I have a disorganized and avoidant and maybe anxious, just the whole soup of them with this idea of work and with the mm-hmm. idea of entrepreneurship. And the longer mm-hmm. I've been in a secure relationship with Johnny, the more secure I seem to be able to relate to other areas of my life <laughs> yeah. that may not even have a human component to them. It might yeah. just be the idea of work. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, wonder if you could speak yeah. to your experience with that a little bit.
0: Totally like. yeah I totally relate to what you just shared. I think I was I don't know. I I I don't I mainly was or tend to be anxiously attached although these days I also can be a little bo- bit more the avoidant kind sometimes. Um and I think when I apply that to other areas of life business but also in my case also the the whole being digital nomad lifestyle thing and traveling the world and whatnot and never being able to commit to any one place, but also with some of the businesses that I started (laughs) not being able to fully, I mean, I committed for a while, but then I'd get bored and then I needed something else. And then I did this and then I did that. And I jumped around a lot also, you know, in my entrepreneurial journey. So absolutely there was, um, a lot of disorganization there in a way. So I, I think I'm a, I'm a good mix of avoidant and anxious for sure. Um, in relationships, yes, it, it played out more, um, as me being the anxious one because, um, I don't know. I think it started with just me suppressing my sexuality and, and not, um, allowing myself to, um, feel the emotions that I had for, um, the women that I was in love with or the girls back then. And so that in itself was, I mean, I would be in love with girls that were clearly not interested in, um, queer relationships, you know? So it already started early on that I was falling in love with these women that were clearly straight and unavailable because of that, (laughs) because it's pretty, when someone's not not responding to, you know, your sexual orientation and it's the unavailability is, uh, yeah, it's just not going to happen, but I still sometimes would fantasize about it happening, you know? Um, so I think it started early on and I think there's multiple factors as to why, that even happened in the first place and probably also very much rooted in um, my childhood and the attachment to, uh, you know, my caregivers, my sister and stuff. But, and maybe there's also some ancestral stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe it's not all from this lifetime because sometimes I feel like that's a lot for, you know, to cause all of that stuff. Um And, uh, and then I just, after that first relationship that I had with this uh woman in Australia and, um, when that ended and it was looking back, I wanted to marry that woman and I, you know, we were going to have children and all the things and it was all planned. But then looking back, it was a very unhealthy relationship. I had massive anger issues and fears of abandonment and terrible, terrible, I had not worked on my stuff whatsoever because I just wasn't there yet. And, um, and so, through that relationship, um then discovering uh Buddhism um to somehow make sense of the grief and the uh, yeah all of that, and then oh gosh, it took a long time for me to understand attachment. It wasn't like I said, like ten years ago, like the whole Instagram thing wasn't what it is now; it had just started, and YouTube and whatnot, and now everybody's talking about the nervous system and attachment. It just wasn't the case back then. And so there wasn't any of that information available. Um, it might've been available on Google, but it just wasn't a thing that I would research. I didn't know what to research. I just knew I was in pain and I was going, I was finding myself over and over again in these very unhealthy situations with other women. Um, and I f- was going from being really anxious in these relationships or dating scenarios um, to also just, going into shutdown and being really depressed. Um, so it would just go up and down and up and down and up and down. It would cost a lot of energy. Um, Mm. and again, health issues, um, is what erupted again as well. And it, it was so, so painful. Um, and I, you know, all I ever wanted, um, was to be with someone, uh, that I loved and that loved me back. And, That's all. And I just had this big yearning for someone to save me or I don't know, but it was, yeah, it was so painful, um, to be in these highly unsatisfying situations where I felt really always rejected, um, running after women that, just, it wasn't healthy, you know, and it was an addiction. It really felt like an addiction looking back. It was, I, it was so highly codependent. Like I was so dependent on them to soothe me, to regulate me because mm-hmm. I didn't know how to regulate myself. Um, mm-hmm. and so I would wait for text messages in, and, and, You know, I was so anxious and there's so much fear in my body. And finally the text message would come and I could finally relax until, Mm. you know, the same cycle started all over again. So that was just ongoing and ongoing. And anyway, when, uh, you know, I did all the therapy and all the coaching and I went to all the Tony Robbins and Dr. Joe Dispenza's and I did all the plant medicine and (laughs) all of it ticked all the boxes. Whatever was available, I traveled around the world to do it and to learn from that person and to have the experience to finally be healed. And it just didn't happen. I just kept on finding, I just, it was unbelievable. It was like roundhog day. It was so frustrating, mm-hmm. so frustrating. And, um, breathwork came along, which as I mentioned earlier on was such a huge game changer for me. And it really helped me to explore and heal parts of myself that still held so much grief and sadness and anger and rage and, you know, loneliness, all of it. And, um, and then, uh, I remember just before I met my now partner, it was just the beginning of COVID and I dated, I was heartbroken again from this breakup and, um, with this girl in the States and, uh, it was terrible. And then, um, this was around the time I met Johnny actually in 2019, um, in Bali and I was really heartbroken. And, um, anyway, I then ended up dating briefly this girl in Berlin when I was in Germany. And it was from the get-go, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't have even, I mean, should have never happened. The first date should have never happened, but it did. And, You know, it was, it went on just for a few weeks and I, again, crashed really hard and I really felt like, okay, this is it. I'm done. Like, it's not meant to be. I, you know, I went to see all the astrologists and whatnot to, and I wanted them to tell me that Connie, you're going to learn, you're going to get, you know, she's going to come, whatever. There's love around the corner, but it just didn't happen. They didn't say that. And so I just really felt like this is it. I'm just not meant to be in a relationship and I surrendered. I, this was when I finally surrendered and I may, I I wanted to Mm. make an oath and, and commit to a life of just emotional independence and just being on my own and, and just (laughs) not getting into any emotional, um, deeper meaningful connections anymore. Um, no more dating. I deleted all the online dating apps. Um, Yeah. And so I surrendered and I just wanted to create a life where I was so happy being on my own and living my life and, and, you know, being a creator and stuff. And that was it. That was, yeah. And then from that place of surrender is when my now partner entered my life, uh, you know, not on any online, online, um, dating apps. It was just very much just, I don't know, divine (laughs) sort of connection. And, um, and then we, we, yeah, it just all happened really naturally and it was all in the flow, but it wasn't completely without any issues. I mean, you know what it's like is the honeymoon phase. And then that's after that is when the real stuff comes up. And of course it came up and I found myself being very much on the one hand, the anxious one, but also the avoidant one and kind of going from one to the other Mm -hmm. here and there. And, and, um, but my partner being eight years older than me, um, having been on her very long journey of healing and integration and stuff, Um, she was able to, um, to, yeah, she was able to commit to all of it and to not, she didn't leave. And it, it wasn't that she didn't leave in a toxic way. Cause you can not leave and be in a toxic relationship and kind of foster that. Right. Mm. But, uh, she was just ready to do the work with me. And that, that mm. was something I'd never experienced before, that someone was truly ready to do the work with me. And so we got a therapist early on, um, after a few months in and, uh, we, uh, did, cu- yeah, couples therapy sessions. Um, she's also a breath worker, so that definitely helps. Um, and so yeah, here we are today, <laughs> not without our struggles at times, but it's very, yeah, it's sometimes it's almost a bit scary how, just regulating our lives are and just, we just love each other and that's it. And things are easy and yeah, Mm. (laughs) we still sometimes Mm. have a couple's therapy sessions, but we laugh about the fights we have these days. (laughs) Honestly. Yeah.
1: Uh, Thank you, Connie. A few things that I'd love to follow Mm. up on that. The, the image that came to mind that I use a lot when I talk about the way my, uh, fear of commitment used to play out and then how that pattern dissolved within my relationship with Johnny and just how these attachment styles and strategies begin to shift when we are, are in a securely attached relationship or where there's at least the potential for that is um, mm-hmm. is like a different rubber bands. So there's the rubber band that's really thin that you can, that just comes with like a rack of pencils and it would probably snap pretty easily if you pulled it. And Mm -hmm. then there's the rubber band that comes with asparagus and people, at least in the United States will know that that's a really thick rubber band that is really hard to just break. And I feel like all of my relationships up until Johnny were these thin rubber bands that the moment there was tension, the moment our strategies started to play out post honeymoon phase, the whole thing just snapped. Mm -hmm. And then with Johnny, it's not like it's not that we didn't have the tension and the pulling away but our rubber band was so much thicker that it could support that and then bring us back together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And almost this like mm-hmm. strengthening of that bond by knowing that mm-hmm. we can, our patterns can play out and we can work with them together because we've met each other in that, that arena yeah. consciously. Yeah. It sounds like you and your partner yeah. have done the same so beautiful. thing. beautiful.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I love you. I know quite a bit about your love story and, and I love it because it's, you know, come with its own challenges and, but here you are and you made it work and, and not in a way that was codependent, but in a way that, you know, you were really both committed to doing the inner work separately and together and to arrive where you are today. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool.
1: Well, Yeah, thank you so much, Connie, for that reflection. It's been really cool to to know that you are great friends with Johnny, and he has Mm. he has nothing but amazing things to say about you. And I've been really grateful for your support and friendship with him over the last couple of years.
0: Mm. Yeah, same, totally, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, Mm. so good.
1: Well, well, to wrap this conversation up, I'd love to end on a, a a warm note. So you and your partner just became puppy parents and I'm curious if you yeah. could just give us in like a couple of sentences what you've been learning about attachment styles through raising a puppy.
0: Oh gosh, raising a puppy, that so that's a whole new arena of <laughs> figuring out life. <laughs> And I think in terms of attachment, like with a puppy as it is with a baby, I guess, you know, it's just, they're so cute and you love them and you got to co-regulate them. Like that was, that's a big thing. Yeah. The co-regulation that happens with a puppy because she can't co-regulate, like she can't regulate herself when she's, you know, there's just so much energy and she can't calm herself down and she needs us to do that and to lie down with her and then she can come down. And so, um, Hmm. there's definitely been in the beginning a bit of like an anxious attachment in the sense that we were worried that we'd do something wrong or that we i don't know um she would uh run away or that she'd hurt herself or I don't know you know just the natural stuff um but actually, I feel like both of us um through the the work that we've done on our own and together um are in a place where we can really offer her a a safe and secure, um, basis and foundation to, um, grow up in and that's regulated. Um, we live now gladly quite boring lives, you know, in the sense that it's, um, there's not much traveling and it's just nice and easy. And I think that really helps, uh, her to become a nice and chill dog eventually. Um, but also as we're, as we're raising her, um, with, I mean, always kind of walking this fine line of just loving her to death and like wanting to strap her on me, you know, but she's getting so big now slowly that it's (laughs) hard to pick her up. Uh, she's four months now. Um, Tony is her name and, um, and at the same time having to be an authority and having to Set rules and, you know, we're training her with a doc trainer and that's, uh, yeah, like finding, finding that middle ground there. Um, and, but through this experience now uh, with my partner and I'm 39 and, and there's still maybe some time left for me to potentially, uh, make a baby. Um, but so that's something that's, um, been really cool to see how we can care, both of us care about a living being, um, that's a dog and how that's going between us and, um, how that sort of also inspired potentially the idea to possibly see if we can also create a human being at some point, which is not Mm -hmm. as easy, obviously, as being in a same sex, uh, in a, um, heterosexual relationship, But, um, so there's more planning involved. Um, but I, yeah, I feel like now after having done a lot of this inner work and I could, I could actually say that I'd be ready to put a human, a little human on this planet and actually raise it to be a cool human that might, I mean, we can't necessarily, you know, Guarantee and control that they'll never be hurt or traumatized and whatnot. But I think that human could grow up in a, in a pretty cool and loving, grounded household with two moms that are pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) If it flows, it flows. If not, then it's not meant to be, but you know, then we just get three more dogs or something.
1: (laughs) Oh, I love it. And uh, yeah, I I interviewed another gentleman recently who, who just had a baby girl and he's very deep Mm. in his healing journey. And that just got me so excited about kind of the new paradigm of parenting where parents have gone through their own, long journeys of coming into regulation and knowing themselves deeply and being able to offer that to their children or their puppies, their animals, whoever Mm. it is in their lives. Like it's, it seems just revolutionary to me. It feels like if we're going to heal the world in any way, like that's where it happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. First we got to self-regulate somehow or find regulation within ourselves and then we can actually help someone else co-regulate and, I think that's what, yeah, I hope that that's going to be the new parenting. How can I be a regulated parent to co-regulate my child? That's no way that's healthy. Mm -hmm.
1: Hmm. (laughs) Well, wishing you and your partner the best on this journey of being conscious puppy parents and potentially parents for (laughs) small humans.
0: (laughs) So Connie,
1: where... Where can our listeners learn more about you? I know we didn't dive really too much into your work as a breathwork teacher. Um, but if you could just give mm. us a little highlight of your work, where to find you and where to stay connected, that would be great.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, and also very refreshing to not talk breath and regu- and nervous system too in depth, um, for once. But, um, yeah, so. I guess Instagram is still the platform where I hang out the most. And so my personal Instagram is connie.bizalski, my last name. And then I have breathwork.alchemy. Um, and also breathworkalchemy.co, connie, c-o-n-n-i dot me. It's my personal website. So lots of options there.
1: <laughs> yeah. And is it possible for people mm-hmm. to learn from you around the world? Cause I know, I believe you also run your teacher trainings in germany or in german Mm.
0: yeah so currently that's in german only we run a breathwork uh teacher training although it's so much more than just breathwork really but um and that's uh currently seven months training it's going to be a nine or 12 months training from next year and we're also planning a uh, an english version um starting probably in the fall of next year um so that's an online and offline training mostly online and then there's an offline component at the end of it. Um so that's happening I'm uh yeah collaborating with my partner on that one um which is fun and yeah and I have a foundations course on breathwork and uh the nervous system and lots of other stuff out there uh, on my websites but yeah <laughs> lots of ways to work with me and get in touch. Thank you.
1: Cool. I'll, I'll link to all of it. Keep us posted mm-hmm. on the, the English training later in 2023. And as a yes. final question, what is one mm-hmm. wild thing you're going to do in the near future?
0: In the near future. Um, well, for one, I want to jump into the wild ocean it's called the atlantic with my partner soon um once we can leave the puppy at home for like half an hour um and just do i don't know it's not i don't know it might not be ice bathing but it's definitely cold at the atlantic is so that'll be a wild thing that i haven't done in a long time um yeah it's probably as wild as it gets currently and in our very regulated life (laughs)
1: yeah <laughs> i love it thank you connie for taking the time and for going deep with us on this podcast i really appreciate it
0: thank you so much kelly this is wonderful thank you yeah. much love
1: thank you for listening to this episode of wild on purpose please think about writing a review and sharing it with your friends if you'd like to learn more about my leadership offerings or join my newsletter, visit wildonpurpose.co. Lastly, I'd like to thank my podcast editor, Jabril al for helping me weave this audio journey together and all of those who have supported me along my path as a creator. Until next time, stay wild.